Well, the Bible is the book of God. It's the Word of God, the revelation of the triune God, which must be received and accepted by faith. The Bible is the book of redemption, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which must be received by faith. The Bible is the book of hope, the book of really of the future, um, revealing the plans and purposes of God, which must be taken by faith. Faith really is the currency of the Bible. It's the currency of, of Christianity, faith in God and His Word. And faith in God is required for, of anyone who is seeking to come to Him. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who draws near to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. Faith in the gospel is required for those who seek to be right with God. Romans 1, 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And it is for the, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it, is, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. Faith in Jesus is required for everyone who wants to become a child of God, a son of God. John 1 tells us, But as many as received him, that is Christ, to him he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And Galatians says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Faith is required for salvation, for there is Salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It is a gift from God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. It's important to know that it is not faith that saves us. It is Jesus Christ who saves us through faith. There is a world of difference between those. Faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. And faith can find no greater object than the person of Jesus Christ. B.B. Warfield, a Princeton theologian of the late 19th, early 20th century said, It is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith. Men and women of great faith are men and women who believe greatly in Jesus Christ. And we find such a person this morning in the passage that's before us. We are in Matthew chapter 15 verse 21. So please turn there in your Bibles. And as you do, I will just remind you of really the context and how, where we find ourselves. Of course, the first 10 chapters, we, we had Matthew presenting Jesus as the, the Messiah, as the King of Israel. In chapters 11 to 13, we see the protest against him, the rejection of him as Jesus, as, as King, Jesus as King. And in Chapters 14 to 20, we really see the preparation of, of the king and of the disciples as Jesus often withdrew from the people 
to prepare himself and his disciples for the cross and beyond. Uh, just in chapter 14, we, we read that Herod beheaded John the Baptist. And in light of that government persecution, Jesus withdrew from Herod's jurisdiction into his brother Philip's region. Um, and of course, many people followed him there. In chapter 15, we read that he fed 5,000 men, at least 5,000 men. Uh, the following day to that, he was confronted by the religious leaders about eating with unwashed hands. And Jesus exposed them for their hypocritical worship, disobeying really, or disobeying the clear commandments of God to uphold the teachings of men, labeling them blind guides who are not part of God's people. And then he instructed them that true defilement is not from the outside, but from the inside, from the heart. That is where evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, and slanders arise from. And that is what truly defiles a person in the eyes of God. And so after that confrontation, Jesus withdrew from Galilee into this Gentile region, a region away from the hostile religious Leaders, And let me follow along as I read from verse 21. And going away from there, Jesus withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and were pleading with him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and was bowing down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And a daughter was healed at once. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, for this wonderful passage. Lord, reminding us of a great truth of your word that you came that you came to offer the kingdom to your people, Israel. And Lord, that upon rejection of that, Lord, you also brought it to us, we who are Gentiles, not of the house of Israel. Thank you, Lord, for the great faith is uh, displayed by this Canaanite woman, faith from which we can learn and which we long and desire to imitate. And so, Lord, teach us this morning and bless us, we pray, through the ministry of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So from our passage, really, we, we find um, lessons about faith. First, first, we see a glimpse of what is to come. Then what I would entitle a grim lesson taught by Jesus. And then a glowing example of great faith. So first, uh, a glimpse of what is to come. Verse 21 says, And going away from there, Jesus withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, after another hostile encounter with the religious leaders, Jesus withdrew again 
and this time to a Gentile region, Tyre and Sidon. These were ancient Phoenician cities, really on the Mediterranean coast. Uh, you'll see them up at the top left there. Uh, and uh, really, they, 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 they covered or, or ruled over areas that was extended quite far inland as well. And we don't know exactly where Jesus was, but he was in that region. Uh, and Tyre is about 40 kilometers away from the Sea of Galilee, which is here in the middle. And then Sidon is another uh, 40 kilometers north of Tyre. So it was quite a considerable journey on foot. Um, Gentiles were generally considered by, by the Jews to be unclean. They were often disdainly called dogs. Um, but Jesus was true to his own teaching that he instructed the people that defilement is not from the external things we do or don't do, but from the heart, from the internal attitudes, the sinful desires of the heart. And so he traveled into this Gentile region where most religious leaders would not, well, they would avoid going there, for in going there, they would consider themselves to have been defiled. Uh, and in this region of Tyre and Sidon, Jesus encountered this Gentile woman. Uh, she would have been considered unclean, defiled in the eyes of the religious leader. Yet this Gentile woman's heart was clean. Her heart was full of faith. She believed in Jesus as the Messiah. Her heart was full of compassion. She sought help for her daughter. And her heart was humble. She came and bowed before Jesus. In stark contrast with the religious leaders whose hearts were full of evil thoughts, unbelief, murderous and slanderous intent. They were really the unclean ones in the eyes of God. And so Jesus withdrawing into this region, this Gentile region, really serves us as a, as a prophetic foreshadowing of the gospel going out to the whole world upon the rejection of the Jews of Jesus and his kingdom. It serves sort of as a glimpse of what is to come, a glimpse of Gentile inclusion into the kingdom, the kingdom plans of God. And mind you, this is not the first glimpse that we find in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is a gospel that is most Jewish of all four of the Gospels. It was written for a Jewish audience. Uh, and yet he did not shy away from pointing repeatedly to the inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom of the Messiah. He is the one who recorded the visit of the Magi. Gentiles from the East who came and acknowledged Jesus as Christ and bowed before Him, really foreshadowing all the Gentile rulers and kings who would come to pay homage to Jesus at this consummation of His kingdom and His kingship, as we read in Isaiah 2 and 49 and 52 and 60. Matthew also quoted extensively Old Testament prophecies in support of Jesus' Messiahship, and these prophecies that he quotes often has make mention of the Gentiles being included in the God's kingdom plans. When Jesus based his ministry in a predominantly Gentile area, the Sea of Galilee, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, Jesus, uh, sorry, Matthew quotes Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 60. Uh, we read this in Matthew 4. 
He says there, in order that it was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentile, the people who were sitting in darkness saw great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Speaking of the, the Galilee of the Gentiles, of course, this is a region within the, the nation of Israel, within the territory of Israel. It was an important center for Roman occupation. And also, it was the route through which most Gentiles which traveled through Israel would pass through. So there were many Gentiles in this area, therefore the name Galilee of the Gentiles. And after healing a man on the Sabbath with a, from his withered hand, the religious leaders took counsel on how they would destroy Jesus, but he kept on healing many. And Matthew wrote that this was to fulfill another prophecy, this time from Isaiah 42, about the servant of the Lord. In Matthew 12, he quotes Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope so repeatedly, Matthew is putting before us that the gospel is not only for coming to the Jews, but also to Gentiles. We read, of course, of the, the healing of the centurion's slave boy, a Gentile, who exhibits great faith in saying that Jesus merely had to speak the word and his slave boy would be healed. And Jesus marveled and said in Matthew 8.10, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Then further on, later, right at the end of Matthew, uh, he records to us Jesus' great commission given to his disciples. And what is that? To go and make disciples of whom? Of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to observe all that he had commanded them. And then, of course, here in our passage, we find again an emphasis on his ministries reaching out to the Gentiles. Verse 22, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began, began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And so Jesus, with, having withdrawn, from, withdrawn from, from Galilee, he entered the Gentile region. Um, I think it was in, his intent was to get away from the hostile religious leaders. Mark tells us in Mark 7 that um, he entered into a house there, and that's where this Gentile or Canaanite woman found him. Um, but it is interesting that, that Matthew not only mentioned that she was a Gentile, but she was a Canaanite by specifically. And that is the only time that term Canaanite is used in the New Testament. And of course, we know that the Canaanites were ancient tribal enemies of Israel. They were some of the people who, uh, who Israel had to drive out of the promised land under Joshua. Of course, they failed. And, and so he's identifying this Canaanite woman uh, really 
serving as, a, as an important pointer to us, in fact, that the gospel will go to all nations, even the ancient enemies of Israel. And that the Gentiles will come to Jesus with their need for deliverance and will come to worship him. And so we find in this passage a glimpse of what is to come concerning Christ, his kingdom, and the gospel that it will be going out to all nations. And this woman came with a great need. Her daughter was cruelly demon-possessed. We are not told what led to this description, but it would be fair to say that anyone possessed by a demon would be miserable under the influence of these vicious and cruel and evil beings. And so she came to Jesus and cried out to him for help. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. She came out of great need because of her daughter's condition. She came with great respect, calling Jesus Lord. She came in great faith, acknowledging him to be the son of David. Really a messianic title. And so this Canaanite woman, in contrast with the Pharisees, acknowledged Jesus to be the Messiah. But Jesus wanted to prepare his disciples for the future reality of gentle inclusion and wanting to show them that all who come to him have to come by faith or in faith. And those who come through faith will be saved. And so he taught both the disciples and this Canaanite woman, what, what I describe as a grim lesson, uh, a, a gruel lesson, a, a hard lesson. Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and were pleading with him, saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and was bowing down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What, what she received is not really what we would expect from Jesus. She received a pretty grim reception by Jesus, a seemingly cold response to her request. And so if this is a prophetic pointer to future inclusion of the Gentiles, how do we explain this? How do we explain this, uh, this reaction of Jesus? This woman first received a silent treatment from the Lord before he gave her some sobering words. At first, Jesus did not answer her a word. He refused to speak to her. Now, that was unusual for Jesus. Normally, he responded quite readily to any appeal for help. And at times, he would take the initiative and help even before a request was made. So why? Why was Jesus giving her the silent treatment? Well, there are a few, few reasons, and all of them have, have merit. The one is that 
Jesus, during his earthly ministry, was not sent to the Gentiles. And therefore, he did not want to deal with this Canaanite woman at this time. Jesus told the Samaritan woman that salvation is from the Jews. And when he sent out his, his disciples, he instructed them to go not into Samaria and the Gentile regions, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the words that is repeated for us in the, our passage here. The kingdom was first offered to the Jews, and this was still ongoing at that time, although rejection of Jesus by the Jews were ever increasing. So this is certainly true that, that he did not, he could he was perhaps silent because of that. The second reason is that perhaps he wanted to test her faith or to grow her faith. For in the end, Jesus said she had great faith. And certainly it would have tested her faith when she came to Jesus and he is silent, ignoring her, not responding to her. It would have tested her faith. The disciples seems to be disinterested in her plight, only ask the Lord to help her because of the annoyance that she is to them and then perhaps the embarrassment. The words of Jesus that he came to the house of Israel and not to Gentiles would have certainly tested her faith. The clarification that she is a Gentile and not entitled to the privileges of, afforded to the children of God, that all severely must have tested her faith in Jesus to deliver her daughter from her desperate condition. There's a third reason that he wanted to teach his disciples. First by refusing to speak to her and then by answering her and giving her her petition. And he was pointing to this future that he will answer the prayers of Gentiles when they come to him through faith seeking his mercy. And so I think option of those three options, option two and three, both are, are great, have great merits. And but I think probably option three, in my view, is is the preferred one because following that passage, we read of Jesus after his little foray into this Gentile region, returning to the Sea of Galilee, and there he healed multitude of people, and again he fed. At least, well, 4,000 men beside women and children from seven loaves of bread and small, a few small fish. And these were predominantly Gentiles that he dealt with. And we'll see that in the weeks to come. I'll explain that. But Jesus wanted to teach and prepare his disciples for this future inclusion of the Gentiles in the plans and purposes of God. With the rejection of Jesus by Israel, the time for the Gentiles will come. And they will be grafted into the promises of God to Israel. And so he gave her the silent treatment as first, and then some sobering words. And these words really support this option three, these words to the disciples and the Canaanite woman. The disciples urged Jesus to send her away. Now, it is not immediately apparent whether they meant just send her away or give her what she wants and then give, send her away. There is no indication that they did not want Jesus to help her. It seems that from Jesus' response in the next verse that it's really a matter that they perhaps did want Jesus to help her and then send her away to give her what she wants because 
They, she's driving them nuts. She's, she's embarrassing them. She's annoying them. And you have to remember, they have never seen Jesus refuse anyone before. So it's probably that they were thinking, Lord, give her what you want and let her go. And Jesus' response to them indicated that that's very likely what they were asking for. Because he said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Saying, I've not come for the Gentiles now. I've come for the house of Israel. And so he was underscoring the fact that first he came to offer the kingdom to the Jews, to Israel. But then as this lesson unfolds, we see that he's, it is also open to the Gentiles. And so this woman, whether she heard the words of Jesus is unclear, but she came closer and she came and bowed before him. She prostrate herself before him, really an act and an attitude of worship. The word actually bow there is translated in other places as worship. And she came this time, she simplified her request. Her verbal affirmation of Jesus as Lord and as King is now replaced by a physical act of affirmation, an act of bowing down before him as Lord and King. And she simply asked, Lord, help me. She came as a sinner needing help. She offered no argument, no reason, no or merit of why Jesus should help her. She believed him to be merciful. And so she came and said, Lord, help me. I don't know about you, but there's something incredibly moving to me about her simple yet strong faith in Jesus. Something we must remember, something we must imitate when we come to Jesus. That we come not because we are worthy of anything, not because we have merited anything. No. We come having nothing to offer Nothing to bring. We simply come because He is merciful. And Jesus answered her again, sobering words. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus did not call her a dog in the derogative way the Pharisees would have addressed the Gentile. There are two words for the used for dog in the New Testament. Here the word means little pet dog, sort of a house pet. Not the filthy, vicious dogs that roam the streets and scavenge the, the, the garbage and refuge. The vicious dogs that we read that came to lick the wounds of Lazarus as he laid at the rich man's door. The word Paul used to describe the Judaizers and the, or those of the false circumcision, they were the filthy, vicious dogs. The Jews would have used that term, filthy, vicious dog, to refer to the Gentiles, calling them Gentile dogs, infidel dogs, 
later on Christian dogs. But Jesus did not call her a filthy dog. He played on this word. He called her little puppy. Making his point with a much gentler word. And no doubt, very gentle in tone and manner. Because remember, Jesus was humble and gentile. Uh, sorry, gentle in heart. Matthew eleven twenty nine. His point was that she was not of the household of God. She was not one of the children of Israel. And he gently reminded her that in a house, the children's bread are to be given to the children and not thrown to the dogs. That would not be good. It would not be right to take away the food of the children, deprive the children of their bread by giving it to the house pets. Yeah, sure, the house pets needs feeding, but not at the expense of the children. And so Jesus gently reminded her that his mission was first to his own people. And this woman of great faith immediately picked up on this, on Jesus' gentle words and tone. And she did not insist to be treated as one of the children of God. She did not... She understood that Jesus' mission was first to his own people, to the Jews. But she cleverly said, Lord, while they are eating, crumbs normally fall to the ground, and the house pets are usually allowed to eat these crumbs. Is there not a crumb for me and my daughter? Yes, we do not belong to Israel. And Lord, I make no claim of belonging to your people. But Lord, surely there must be crumbs for a couple of Gentiles. Gentile house pets like us. This woman had incredible faith, great faith. She truly is a, is a glowing example of great faith. Verse 28, and Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, you are great. Your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. This woman had great faith. Jesus commended her for her great faith. The only place in the Bible where the word great is linked to faith. Back in this, when he, when he commended the centurion, he was saying he has not seen this much faith is a different word that was used to describe the centurion's faith. Here, he says, this woman, you have great faith. You have intense faith. You have firm faith. You have strong faith. Your faith is not dissuaded. It's not deterred. It's not diminished or dashed. It is great in intensity and it perseveres. What made her faith so great? would be a good question to ask, I hear. Jesus commended her for great faith. And it's because her faith, remember I said, faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. And her faith was in Jesus. This woman knew who Jesus was. She called him Lord. In fact, every recorded statement of her begins with this title, Lord. And she called him the son of David. As I said, a messianic title. Really uh, followed the, the, the covenant God made with David in, in 2 Samuel 7. 
that gave rise to this notion and it became established through the teachings in the Psalms, Psalm 18, 78, 89, 132, 144, and also through the prophecies of the prophets. Again, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Amos. And Ezekiel 34 reads, verse 23 reads, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Here is a prophet 500 years after David who prophesied that the son of David would be a shepherd to his people, would be a prince to them. And so she knew Jesus and confessed him both as her Lord and as the Messiah, the King of Israel. Faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. And there was no one else on earth that could have helped her and her daughter. No one could have delivered them from the clutches of the evil one, the, true, the cruel captivity of his demonic emissaries. Faith is great when it is placed in Christ alone. Biblical faith, genuine faith, really requires knowledge. It requires assent or agreement to that knowledge. And it requires trust or commitment to that knowledge. And so she knew who Jesus was. She had knowledge of him. He is the Lord. He is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And she agreed that this is true of Jesus. She professed it with her mouth. And she acted on it by coming and bowing down before him. And she trusted in that knowledge. She was fully convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and she placed all her confidence in him. And faith is great when it is placed in the person and the works of Jesus Christ, in the person and the words of Jesus Christ, in the person and the character of Jesus Christ, in the person and the power of Jesus Christ. So her faith was great because her faith was in Jesus. And her faith was graced because her faith was in Jesus' mercy, not in her own merit. Verse 22, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Verse 25, simply, Lord, help me. Verse 27, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall on their master, from their master's table. Said, yes, Lord, I know I am not part of your people. I know I am alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. I know I am a stranger to the covenant promises of, promises of God to Israel. I have no merit. I have no righteousness of my own. I have no entitlement. And I come making no demands based on who I am. But I come because I know you. You are the merciful Messiah. I come based on who you are and ask, Lord, help me. Be merciful to me. Great faith trusts wholly in the goodness of God. Great faith relies completely on the riches of God's mercy. 
great faith depends solely on the abundance of his grace and his kindness. And great faith acts on the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For all who come to him must come in faith, believing that without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Believing that it is by grace you have been saved and that by grace through faith that you've been saved and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works so that no one may boast believing that the eyes of the Lord move, move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his, believing that the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will forgiven. He will be forgiven. Believing that no petition will ever be granted based on merit, but only wholly, fully, completely based on the mercy of God. Mercies that are new every morning, which God graciously and lavishly bestow and pour upon those who come to Him in faith. This woman had great faith for she believed in Jesus. She believed herself to be meritless and him to be merciful. And she had great faith because she persevered in her faith. She came to Jesus believing him to be the Messiah. She came to him believing and she persisted in that belief. When he was silent, he did not answer her. She believed him. She believed who he is or who he was and that only he could help her and her daughter. She believed when the disciples were indifferent to her plight, half-heartedly interceding for her that the Lord would grant her what she wants, that she would go away, not out of love and concern, but out of annoyance and embarrassment. She believed that he is the Lord, the Messiah, and that he alone can help her. And that no matter what others say or what others do, her faith was not in them and their help. Her faith was in him. She knew who he was, and she wholly entrusted herself to him and his goodness. And when Jesus said to her, she is not his priority at this time, that he came first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Her faith was undeterred. She believed that he is the Lord, that he is the king of Israel, and therefore he is good and gracious, merciful and kind, full of compassion and abounding in love, and that he would never turn anyone away whose heart is set on him, whose faith is rooted and grounded in him. When Jesus said to her that she had no right to come to him, no merit to come, that she was not of the house of Israel, that she was not a partaker of the covenant promises of God to Israel, 
but that she was a dog under the table of God's children. Her faith in him persevered. Her faith was unwavering. Lord, I know who I am. I am utterly undeserving. I am not worthy of your grace and your mercy. I know I am not entitled to sit at the Messiah's table. I know I'm not a member of your covenant family. I know I am a Gentile dog. But Lord, let me eat the crumbs of your uncovenanted grace. For I know who you are. You are the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. You are rich in mercy, abounding in grace, overflowing with love. I know you hear the prayer, the petition of everyone who calls upon you in faith. I know that whoever calls on your name, believing, will be saved. She persevered in her faith. And it's important for us to, to note that the Lord did not commend her or compliment her for her humility. Her humility was great. He did not commend her for her persistence, though her persistence was unrelenting. He commended her for her faith. It was her faith that he called great. Faith that was placed in Jesus, not her own merits or own works. You may remember Abraham believed God. He believed God to be trustworthy, that God will bring about his promises, that he will have descendants as many as the sand of the sea, while his wife Sarah's womb was dead, and he was as good as dead. And because he believed, God counted his faith to him as righteousness. And he received the blessing of God's promise. Years later, his son Jacob received the same faith as his grandfather. For he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. He persisted. He persevered. He prevailed, saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. In Genesis 32, verse 26. And the angel blessed him, changing his name from Jacob to Israel, for he had striven with God and with men and have prevailed. This Gentile woman exhibited the same faith as Abraham, the same faith as Jacob, and she prevailed. The Lord granted her her petition, and her daughter was healed from that very hour. So, people, great faith is evidence in the trust we place in the person and promises of Jesus. Great faith is evidence in the humility that we have before God. Great faith is evidence in the persistence of our prayers. Not merely persistence. It's not only persistence that will pay dividend. It's not that if we pray long enough, hard enough, endlessly for what we want, then we will get it. No, no, no. Sometimes we pray wrongly. Sometimes we pray with wrong motives. Often our prayers are selfish and self-serving. 
That's not the kind of prayers that God will answer. If we are praying according to His will with persistence, that is what God will bless. And sadly, that is a rarity nowadays to persevere in prayer for His will to be done, for His kingdom to come, for faith in God and His Word. However, throughout history, in time of greatest need, God raised up a people who pray, who pray believing, who pray humbly, who pray persistently. In times past, whenever the Lord has poured out His abundant grace, His saving grace on a community, on a city, on a nation, it has been in response to raising up a person, a people, a church to pray, to pray believing in the one who is willing and able to deliver and to save. And people, we, our days are, are dark. Our leaders are blind. Our nation is morally corrupt, spiritually apostate to the little knowledge they have of God. They need our help. Our family, our friends, our neighbors, our nation are cruelly demon-oppressed. They are deceived. They are deluded. They are destroying themselves. Will we not imitate this Canaanite woman? and pray for God's mercy on our family and friends, on our neighbors, on our community, on our city, on our nation. Let us pray believing God is willing and He is able to save and to deliver. Even though God may be silent for now, even though Many does not seem committed or keen to intercede. Let us pray because he is merciful, knowing full well that nothing merits his mercy. Let us pray and persist in prayer for the Lord to allow the crumbs of his grace to bless an unworthy people with his deliverance, his rescue, his salvation. Let us pray to the Lord like this woman did, with great faith. And let us persevere when at first God is silent. Pray. Let us pray when others are disinterested. Let us pray when we think that we are not at this moment God's priority. Let us pray when we know that we have no merit to seek His grace and His mercy.
Let us pray because of who he is. That he is the merciful Messiah. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we just stand humble before you. Lord, humble to be taught such a profound spiritual lesson on great faith from someone who had so little, who knew so little, but she knew enough. She knew you, Lord. She knew that you are the Lord God, that you are Christ, the Messiah. And she kept coming. So, Father, I pray, make us a people of great faith. Faith not in our efforts and in our merits and in our status or our past, our anything that we may bring or think of worth. But let us come knowing who you are, that you are the gracious, merciful, loving God who has given us Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.